Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a special guest, Patri Friedman. Patri, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Patri, we have a lot to get into this episode. We're going to talk about your advocacy work with seasteading, thoughts on competitive governance, thoughts on crypto, investing, finance, markets, eat the world. First, maybe let's start with what is crypto skeptic crypto? How does that inform your investing thesis in space? Sure. So I guess the idea for me is the combination of believing in the hype and the promise of crypto to really transform the world, yet at the same time, also agreeing that there's a lot of poor structure in the ICOs, there are projects which have no chance of delivering value, and just a lot of bad incentives. Sort of like with .com, the internet really did change the world. And also, most IPOs were junk. And there's actually not really any conflict between those views. Totally. So I, w- I want to give some back up and give some sort of historical context, because you've been thinking about some of these ideas since the early 2000s and even before then. So Backing up a bit, your your grandfather is Milton Friedman. Your your, your father is David Friedman. Uh, so you grew up thinking a lot about these ideas. You had a line in other podcasts, something along the lines of, "Who would have thought that the nerds and the Austrian economists would be getting rich?" Give a little bit of history into how you sort of come to these ideas and how your work over the last two decades has led you to where you are right now. Sure, absolutely. Um, I majored in math and then computer science actually studied cryptography and discrete math. And, you know, as a, as a libertarian back then in like late 90s, early 2000s, you know, I was fascinated by things like Haven Co., by David Chown's eCash systems. So just a long time interest in this topic. Although back then I kind of didn't really think about the decentralized nature of these networks or how important governance could be. And then at the same time, you know, I was very interested in this question of like, how can we have better countries? I just felt like dissatisfied, like, ah, like this country is not very good. And I looked around like, oh, there's not any better countries. Like, why not? What's, what's going on? And so that was kind of what I read and studied and theorized about is this question of like, why don't, why don't governments work very well? And I came with this idea that you can think about government like an industry. And if you think about it like an industry, it has some really poor characteristics for innovation. First off, there's like not that many countries it's really hard to switch countries from one to another and it's really hard to start a country. And, you know, those sentences all sound really weird when we're talking about countries, but if we were talking about firms, we'd be like, oh yeah, if you have some industry where it's hard to switch providers, it's hard to start a competing provider, there's not very many providers, of course it's going to do a terrible job. Like if it has no startup sector, of course it won't innovate. And I think that's no different for government than anything else. And so with that idea, I came up with the idea that the ocean might be the best place to create the startup sector and build new countries. I got funding for that from Peter Thiel back in 2008, left my job at Google and and advocated for it. So that's something that I've been thinking about and working on for a long time. And then more recently uh, with the rise of the crypto industry, it's been absolutely amazing to see how in an environment where governance matters, but where you have exit, where you can fork off a system, you can just write code. You don't have to get approval from a country, how fast governance is evolving. And so now I'm just super excited that these 
sectors are kind of coming back together. And we have this world where there's this crossover now between bits and atoms, between virtual governance and physical governance and where they're influencing each other. And I just think that's super exciting. I, I want to get into, start with some of the C-setting stuff, but even to, to zoom back, if I, if I sort of think about tracing the sort of natural evolution, uh, you know, I think you, your grandfather, Milton Friedman, is sort of pioneering sort of classical liberalism, you know, laissez-faire capitalism, and your dad is sort of pioneering sort of more anarcho-capitalism, and then you is sort of putting those ideas into practice via, via competitive governance. How do you sort of think about the evolution between your grandfather's work and your father's work and your work? Yeah, I think there's actually like, kind of a natural progression, which is like unusual. It fits like almost too well, where each of us had an approach for changing the world that kind of like failed and got rejected. We'll see if mine does too. But where my grandfather was about coming up with good policies, like here's a good law to achieve what you want. Okay, you want publicly funded education, but you want to be of good quality, give a certain amount to each student, a voucher that they can then take to a private school. And he also focused on advocacy on making like a really good case, a clear, cogent, polite argument for something and trying to change the world that way. And, you know, in some ways he was very successful, like a number of his policies got implemented, but the overall arc of how America has kind of developed and degenerated didn't really change. And so then my dad comes along a generation later and we now have public choice economics, like where people go in, it's kind of like crypto economics analyzing the attack vectors of the system where you go and you say, in a democracy with these voting rules, what are the incentives and will it actually produce good laws? And we have Nobel Prize winning economics that says, no, a democracy won't actually tend to produce laws that are good for people. And so he came up with, along with other people, a system called anarcho-capitalism where you have private production of laws, private entities competing to make entire legal systems, and where there's some economic theory that suggests that this might actually produce laws that are of net benefit. But then, you know, over the course of decades of advocating for that and tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who are like, oh, that's really cool. I want to try this system. You know, I come along and it's like, okay, why doesn't it exist? Why hasn't anyone gotten to try it? It must not be that we, you know, need good policies or good arguments because my grandfather had those and, you know, we still have a poorly functioning world. It must not be that we need an idea for a good legal system because my dad had one and it, it doesn't exist. So what's missing? What's missing is that no matter how good our ideas for new political and legal systems are, there's no place to try them. And so, you know, I come along and say, okay, that's what we need. And, you know, we'll find out whether or not there are seasteads or charter cities that bring new legal systems into the physical world or whether there's, you know, some deeper problem remaining. That's a great way of putting it. And did your grandfather not himself see the need for a new legal system or did he just not get there? What was sort of the the leap that your father took that your, your grandfather didn't take or where did they differ, if at all? I think my dad was more willing to take the ideas of of freedom and voluntary interaction to the extreme and that he came at it partly from that sort of moral place of, okay, so if having less and less government is, is a good thing because we interact freely through choice, like, is it possible to have no government at all? And I feel like it almost started out as a thought experiment and then, you know, turned out as he developed it that there, there's actually sort of economic theory behind it. But I think, you know, there's also a generational thing between whether one's trying to promote evolution or revolution. I think it's as a system ages and gets more and more towards collapse. I mean, look at the, you know, the rise of of right-wing leaders and and people voting for much more extreme candidates than they did before. I think it's partly out of 
desperation. As things fall apart, you look for more and more radical solutions, and that's just natural. And what's the summary that your dad would say or that you would say in terms of why democracy doesn't work? And what about new approaches like liquid democracy or some of the other sort of mechanisms that people have been proposing today? Sure. I, I think that there's actually a lot of different reasons for democracy, but the simplest one is the idea of, of concentrated versus dispersed interests. So this is the idea that if there's, if somebody proposes a law that would cost every American a dollar, that's a $300 million loss. And now suppose that it benefits some company by 30 million. So on net, that's a $270 million loss for society. But such a law will pass every time in a democracy. In fact, democracy is almost like a system for passing laws like that. And the reason is that if some legal change is going to cost me a dollar, I'm never going to know about it. Like, I don't have the time to track the 10,000 paragraphs of law every year that might cost me a dollar. There's no way that would ever be worth my time. Whereas the, the corporation that benefits by $30 million, they're going to know about it. They probably wrote that paragraph. They're happy to spend $10 million on lobbying for it and get a $20 million profit. And so our system, this thing that happens where it passes laws that hurt everybody a little bit and benefits some special interest, people see that as a failure mode or it only happens because we have the wrong leaders. But it's actually the expected result of the system where you get to vote every few years for one candidate and give like you know, one bit of information every three years. I think that liquid democracy, in some ways, it improves on this by letting you delegate at any time and by letting you delegate per topic. Liquid democracy is sort of a, like a delegated proof of stake system, but it doesn't change these informational problems. Um, and in the same way that I might not know, you know, about a paragraph of law that's going to hurt me, I can't necessarily judge like, okay, who is the person who knows how to look out for those laws and knows how to prevent them. So I, I think it's an improvement, but it has some of the same problems. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So setting start in 2008, what have we learned over the last decade or so? Like, what, what has that experience been like? What, what if you knew now you would apply then, if you knew it back then? Unpack your story a little bit. Sure. I mean, I say that one thing is that it, this should have been obvious, but it turns out to be a lot easier to get uh, news stories and even to get people writing science fiction stories than to start a new country. And we kind of constantly try to bring ourselves back from, you know, the news and the excitement to, to the practicality, but I still think we could have done better at that. I mean, I think we're in a really exciting time for competitive governance. There, like, there is not yet a CSED or a autonomous charter city, but the willingness of governments to consider these ideas and the number of, of tech leaders who think, yeah, obviously we need startup countries uh, has really grown. So, you know, Seasteading Institute has an agreement with French Polynesia to try to build a seastead in their waters. The Honduran government uh, back in 2010 and 11 changed their constitution to enable creating charter cities on land. You've got countries now that are looking into replacing their, their fiat currencies with crypto-based currencies. Uh, you got Estonia that has their e-citizenship program. Things are really, even though it hasn't happened yet, I'm just seeing an, like an incredibly fertile world for these projects. And I think that in the next decade, we will have uh, multiple competing startup cities. So that's really exciting. I am like kind of less sold on the ocean as being the place for the near term. You know, partly I look to the ocean just because countries on land had historically not been willing to offer even semi-sovereignty. There was a, a group 
called Laissez-Faire City based on the sovereign individual that put a full-page ad in The Economist in, in the late 90s saying, we want to make a city. We have over a million dollars raised. Will any country let us? And, and no country was, was willing to give them any autonomy. And so I looked to the oceans partly out of necessity, although I do think that some of the physical characteristics of the ocean actually make it better for startup countries. But I think that now that countries on land are willing to do it, it's, it's more likely that it'll start on land first because land is just cheaper and easier to build on. Although I still think that in the long term, we, we have to settle the oceans. What do you think is going to be the wedge that makes competitive governance more mainstream or, or closer to, to mainstream? Is it a killer app or use case or, or, or what needs to be true for, for it to, to materialize? I think that partly like the, the continued failure of existing systems and citizens kind of being fed up with it and not being willing to just accept that, that their country has a poor legal system or is corrupt or refuses to experiment. And I also feel like the internet and to some degree crypto may drive it. Like if, if people get used to seeing governance evolve at the speed of software and you have people who, you know, you have hundreds of billions so far, perhaps trillions eventually of dollars of wealth created by people using innovative governance and trying out these new mechanisms and new systems and not just doing things the old way, not just doing, you know, what the textbooks say you have to do, how you have to have money, but trying something brand new. I feel like that's going to drive people to expect the same from their countries. And then as these countries start to be created, that'll put competitive pressure on existing countries, just like in any industry. Like, I feel like a lot of the things that I say are like, just applying the way you talk about any other business to, to government. So when you have a startup sector, the industry leaders have to either copy the startups or buy the startups and imitate them, or they get competed out of existence. And I think the same thing's going to happen with the government industry. I don't know if it was you or Balaji who uh, compared um, the USA to Microsoft. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it was Balaji. 230-year-old Coinbase system shuts down for weeks straight. Yeah, that's a great, great quote. Can you unpack more how your crypto and competitive governance you know, investment thesis intersect or unpack more how they will influence each other? Sure. I think, you know, when I, when I started developing these theses, I was thinking of them as being more separate, that I, would, that I would invest in charter city projects and that I would invest in, you know, in, in crypto projects of, of the right type that passed my skepticism. But I'm seeing more and more overlap the idea of, of virtual governance that, for example, countries will offer citizenships on the blockchain that we may see, you know, we've been having ICOs, but when are we going to have an initial citizenship offering? And that using liquid democracy is another example. So using software to actually govern a country, something like liquid democracy, it's, it's, it's hard to do without software. Like, okay, I give my proxy to you, you give your proxy to her, and now she's going to vote on issues having to do with global trade. Like, you, you just can't keep track of it. It's not, it's not practical, but with software, you can do it. So I, I'm really fascinated about the overlap between these worlds, about governance software affecting the real world, and about jurisdictions that set up laws explicitly for cryptocurrency or for other types of innovation. Uh, medical research and medical tourism is one that I'm, I'm very interested in and that Peter Thiel also kind of sees as, as maybe the, the, the killer app uh, for a new physical jurisdiction because he's seen how problematic it is to launch, launch new therapies in the U.S. You've mentioned in writings that the sharing economy is sort of a brilliant, not de- you know, deception, but a brilliant name 
to introduce the concept of introducing new markets into a place where they didn't exist before, you know, because people focus first on sharing and sharing is so, so positive as opposed to new economies. And I'm, I'm curious if there's a similar analogy or example that can be applied to competitive governance that makes it more legible, accessible, less quote unquote threatening to existing governments. Yeah. And I, I think that that's happening to some degree. If you look, for example, at the Honduras program of, of having these zones, not be like in your face, like we are independent. We are like doing things differently. Like we are against you, but instead what what's happening now with the charter cities movement and with sea setting is this idea of cooperation between a group of people that has the, the expertise and the capital to build infrastructure and to take a legal system and administer it. And between a, a, a country that wants economic development, wants more jobs for its people and is willing to take, you know, an area of empty land or empty ocean and use it for this, for this experiment to provide jobs. And so I think that kind of cooperation is, is really important and that people are going to be more comfortable uh, with these kind of hybrid systems. The Honduran program, you know, they haven't launched a city yet, but they've been working on this program hard for, for the last seven years, and it's making a lot of progress. And in their system, the city has some freedom to write its own commercial law while having to follow the remainder of Honduran commercial law and all Honduran criminal law and the Honduran constitution. And I think that that's, you know, if you're focused on the, oh, we want brand new countries where everything's totally different, then it's like, oh, like, like, what do you mean you have to follow their criminal law and constitution? But I think realistically, like you can make a much, a much better zone to create jobs for people if you can write business law. I mean, talking about uh, incorporation, laws governing securities, money. These are like big, big areas. And, you know, a lot of the problems with starting companies and with economic growth in the developing world is from how hard it is to get a business license or do the paperwork to start a business. So, you know, I think that these kind of hybrid zones where you get some new laws, but use some old ones are, are a way to be more friendly. For really talented entrepreneurs out there who are fascinated by this type of work and want to build something in, in the space, the space between new cities and special economic zones more broadly, what's your sort of request for, for startups in terms of where do you want to see them experiment or innovate or, and what advice would you have for them? Yeah, this is something that I'm actually working on through uh, the Startup Society's Foundation, which is a nonprofit I'm on the board of. You know, we're working on, on kind of writing almost a, a, a guidebook and I would say that like right now is the time. If you're, if you're a talented entrepreneur who's passionate about creating communities, if you have a group of people that are really interested in your ideas and skills in, in real estate or governance, now's a great time to start a city. You know, there's, there's a growing number of countries who are interested in and willing to talk to you and organizations like the Seasteading Institute, Start Societies Foundation, the Center, Center for Innovative Governance Research, Mark Letters Org, that are all working to actually make these projects happen. So yeah, I think about it as a real estate play partly and not, not that you're going to make a, a new society from scratch and build a really strong relationship with your host country. They are your host, your partner, your, your key stakeholder. And as for the rest, uh, we're working on a guide. Let's say, look at me personally, I'm a community builder. I have this podcast audience that you know, follows my every move, let's just say for hypothetical. And so they would follow me into a new city. What's like the really hard part? Like, what would you, what would I need to figure out? If I can figure out how to, how to get people to follow me, what else needs to be figured out? Right. So I think that 
hardest parts are basically getting the agreement with the host country. So building that relationship, you know, finding a type of, of zone where the laws that you have independence on are enough to create a business case for what you're doing enough to, you know, often these countries are, are more remote, remote, have, have less developed infrastructure, have a less educated population. And you need to be able to make up for that with the quality of your governance, with the people that you, that you bring there. And so you, you have to, you have to build that relationship with them and figure out what are the anchor tenants that, that make sense there. And I think one thing people neglect is how important it is to have businesses where the physical location matters. You know, for example, doing medical research or, you know, medical tourism, uh, that's a short trip from the U.S. I think people, when people give me ideas for like the business they want to do in a, in a, a startup country, often it's like, oh, it's this thing on the internet that could be done for, from anywhere. But if it can be done from anywhere, then you're competing with every jurisdiction in the world to do it. And it's going to be hard for a startup country to compete with every jurisdiction in the world. They don't have the, the infrastructure, the trust, the institutions, or like the scale to, to do it. And so I just definitely recommend that people think about uh, businesses that are, that are local. Ah, and you're not just interested in new, in new cities. You're also interested in sort of investing in governance technology more broadly or you're looking at government as an industry. What else are you interested in investing with, within that realm or what other opportunities would you recommend entrepreneurs go, go pursue if not, if not new city, cities directly? You know, to get back to this idea of, of markets eating the world, I think that you know, part of my thinking in governance is thinking about this industry that nobody else thought of as an industry as an industry, and then just making logical conclusions from there. And I think that there's something similar that, that people should be doing when they think about, about software and crypto systems, where everybody's thinking about cryptocurrency, right? They're thinking about these, these things as money because they have this Bitcoin bias. Bitcoin was this first use case. You know, it's worth a lot of money. A lot of people got rich on it. It's like this amazing confluence of technologies. And so people then go and launch a thousand other tokens that they think will be a store of value that they think that they can like pre-sell at a low price and will accumulate later. As opposed to thinking about the idea of these crypto technologies as being agoric technologies, meaning a set of tools that can help us build new markets where markets didn't exist before. And I think that the next hundred crypto startups that, that succeed and become unicorns are going to be startups that take kind of opaque, illiquid markets, things that are paper-based is a good way to think of it. Biology has this great analogy of the paper belt, like the rust belt of yore. The industry is like education, media, government finance that run on paper and aren't working very well. And I think taking that paper and and putting it online in digital form uh, with clear rules and smart contracts, like that can spawn a hundred businesses. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned market eating the world because we've been we've been going back and forth on, on that just us too. But and also, when did that idea first come in your mind? Uh, you know, the phrase "markets eat, eat the world." How is that different from Andreessen's software is eating the world? And you know, how else does that manifest as a sort of investing thesis or guiding philosophy? Yeah, it it came to mind earlier this year when I was doing a lot of just thinking and kind of writing privately about crypto technologies and. As you say, it's inspired by Mark Andreessen's great line that software is eating the world. And kind of what he meant by this is that 
it's easy to think of there being this limited tech industry, this sort of narrow area where this technology can apply and there's some number of things that should go to the web and should be replaced by algorithms and then we're done. But in fact, the idea of automating decisions or you know, putting, putting things that are currently being done by, by humans in the physical world into computers is something that can affect every industry, right? I mean, like, just think of anything. I want to think like, gardening. Gardening seems like something that doesn't need to be replaced by software, but like there are apps that can use your smartphone and satellite pictures to try to figure out what's wrong with your crops, you know, based on technology. You know, you could be like looking up, oh, like what's the optimal sun for this plant on your smartphone? Like software is so general that it can affect everything. And that's why the wave has never like crashed. It's never peaked. We're still replacing things with software and we're going to keep doing that. And then what I thought about looking at, uh, looking at companies like Uber and Airbnb and eBay and Amazon that were creating markets and then looking at crypto technology is that there might be the same thing with markets eating the world where the, the number of different industries that can be transformed by taking informal things and making them into markets might be huge. Like it's something that could potentially touch every area of our life. And so you know, Airbnb, in a, in a sense, was tokenizing hotel rooms. Uber was tokenizing cabs. They took these markets that worked poorly, were split up, and then brought them online, formalized them, like, in a centralized way, but where the market was just way more effective in this form. And, you know, I, I went and the key moment for me, I went and looked at, like, the list of all unicorn companies by market cap and counted, like, which of them are taking things and making them into markets. And it was half, like half of current unicorns worked by making a market in something. And, and that was what kind of confirmed for me that this, you know, this is a big trend. And so a lot of people draw a line to cryptocurrency from say PayPal, like, oh, it's digital money. But for me, the line that, that I draw is from all of these sharing economy companies. And that's kind of what crypto is the evolution of. So if, if you were, let's say, Mark Andreessen said, hey, join Andreessen Horowitz, and now your investing mandate is markets eat the world, does this mean that you would then go into all areas that don't, you know, healthcare, education, that don't have real markets and try to sort of disrupt them through companies that cr- create new economies? Or are there certain segments where you say, actually, there will never be a market here, and it, that does, it, or it will never be big enough? How, how would your thesis impact your investing decisions from where you invest? Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's not really a simple answer for sort of like industry by industry or resource by resource, like what things can easiest, most easily be made into markets and which can't. And that's going to depend on kind of specialized knowledge of every domain. I mean, there's some things like like restaurant food catalogs or like international shipping and logistics where like it's just, it's obvious that those things could be better markets. And there's other things like governance, which is more controversial, where some people feel like, like, no, you shouldn't be able to sell your vote. You know, and other people like my dad feel like you could build an entire legal system off the idea of private companies negotiating to get the best laws for their for their customers. And so I think, yeah, it's something that, you know, you could spend spend ten thousand pages answering, like sort of in every sector of our lives, you know, can this be made into a market? How soon will it be made into a market? How much does it matter to decrease the prices? So there's not, not a simple answer. Well, we, we talk about the paper belt 
and you know, crypto is doing that for finance or, or aims to do that for, for finance. What do you think about healthcare and education specifically in terms of marketing the world and opportunities there? Yeah, I would definitely say that, that education, it's, it's not something that, that I'm personally focused on, but it's clearly one of these areas like, like finance and like government that's kind of been working worse and worse. That's, that's operating this old way where you have these powerful gatekeeper institutions that are extracting rents and that just, just needs to be disrupted. And, you know, like making a market in education. I mean, here's one example that my grandfather proposed is the idea of selling a share of your future income in order to fund present expenses, like especially present education. Like there's no reason why you couldn't have a market, you know, instead of using, instead of using student loans that you instead sold a share of your future income or your income for the next 10 or 20 years to someone in return for an educational loan. And then you would actually have pricing. You'd actually have somebody who cared about the question of like, is this investment going to make them more money? Like what, what are the cost benefits, which is something that, that, that we've just neglected. And so where you'd actually be only trying to make like positive investments. And what we instead have with college is this sort of like emotions about the idea that going to college is how you have social mobility. It's how you ensure yourself a good job, you know, which were true in a previous generation and are demonstrably like not true now, right? If 20% of people go to college, then you can guarantee yourself a good job by going to college. If 80% of people do, it doesn't mean the same thing. So I think that's definitely something where we need markets. Healthcare is a lot trickier. I think that, you know, a lot of the problems with healthcare are problems of, of opaque pricing and just everything that comes from the fact that, that a third party pays, you know, there's just kind of a whole, a whole mess. It's not that we need more markets. It's just when you have a, a third party paying and when you have like this annual upfront payment that then covers a bunch of things, you just get messed up incentives and the whole system that evolves from there is, is, is screwed up. So I, I think we could use a lot more markets in healthcare, but it's not straightforward how to, how to create them. Uh, have you ever invested in a healthcare company or, or could you see yourself doing so? Or do you sort of say, hey, I'll, I'll, that's either too complicated or I'll leave it to the experts or in fact, there's, I don't know if there's that much opportunity there relative to things like education. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's a very, it's very specialized and that, you know, for things that are, that are disrupting the current system, you need to understand kind of how the bureaucracy and how the insurance industry works. And then there's the, the area of like of new treatments where again, there's very, very specialized knowledge. So if, if it was something that I, that I knew a lot about, I could imagine investing in it. You know, it's interesting. What does going back to human com- uh, capital contracts for a second or income sharing agreements known as today, I think there's a version of the world in which you being, you know, Milton Friedman's grandson pursued that head on instead of competitive governance. Like you were just <laughs> the income sharing agreement. You brought that to the world. Why didn't that happen? Were you not crazy enough about it? Did it seem somewhat impractical or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think for me, I like, I started out motivated by like what I wanted as a, you know, as a citizen. And, you know, I was, I was, able to in our in our system like pay for my education and that wasn't wasn't a burning need but i just was very very dissatisfied with kind of how the country was run and what the options were and i kind of you know i started from that personal need and kind of went on a journey where eventually i was like wait a second this is something that that the whole world needs like people all around the world especially in the developing world are really suffering from having bad governance from not being able to start new systems and not having there be a place like America was in the 19th century where 
people from all around the world could go there and work hard in an honest legal system and make a new life. And so I think that governance is just bigger, but maybe it's, maybe it's thornier, maybe it's not the right problem to crack, but to me, it's, it's kind of the big one. How do you think about change from the inside versus sort of disruption from the outside? Um, there's a few ways to take this question. One is, given your desire for competitive governance and given sort of Peter Thiel's sort of you know, rise to political you know, power, I guess, if, if, if there was a world in which you, and maybe there has been a world in which you've been offered a spot in the White House or, or opportunity to change from within, how would you measure that from, from disrupting from without? Not that these are mutually exclusive. But. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, it's really tempting to, just like it's tempting to be like, all right, if we're going to start a new country, it needs to be completely independent. We need to have like a legal system that we write from scratch that has, you know, absolutely perfect according to our, our philosophies. And that, you know, that's actually not the best way to, to, to change things. And so it's really tempting to be like, oh, you know, I would never want to reform things from the inside. And, and I think that people do have a bias uh, against building really new things you know, that there are, that there are too few startups and too few experiments and that people way more often want to like try to patch our existing system. And that that usually doesn't work, that, that most of the problems are not, you know, not caused by, oh, nobody suggested a better environmental policy. They're not caused by like, we didn't vote the right person in. They're caused by having a system of incentives that does not incentivize making good environmental policies. And so I think that people are incrementalism, that people are like usually wrong and have a huge bias towards trying to do it too much. And that the world, you know, we get much more progress if we uh, tried more radical solutions and, you know, and people are understandably nervous about radical legal changes. And that's why we need to have these zones of experimentation, you know, where you, you're like, okay, well, if you don't want to try this radical legal proposal, great, you don't have to. By, by continuing and staying put and doing what you have been doing, you're not going to have to do it. It's only the people who opt into it. And I think, I think that that's, that's really important. How do you have multiple parallel governments without also having a civil war or any sort of violence at all? Well, I mean, we, we, we do in the U.S. have multiple parallel governments without having a civil war. So it's, but it's also the balance of power has, has shifted enormously over the course of, of America's history. So on the one hand, it's like, well, you can, but on the other hand, it's like, okay, but who is actually in control, who actually has more power and how do you stop them over time from, you know, doing what the U S federal government did and just taking more and more and more power to themselves. And this question of how do you, how do you have self-protecting systems? How do you have checks and balances on, on power and on sovereignty? You know, I, I don't think there's easy answers. I think it's, that's like one of the great questions that we face. But I think that there is, you know, there is one set of answers, which is much beloved in the cryptocurrency community or much hated depending who you are. And that's, that's exit, that the, the right to fork. Um, and that that's a way that you can fundamentally limit the power that an institution has so that if it's doing a poor job of serving you, you just leave. And, you know, there's something beautiful in, in crypto about how you can, you can leave, but still keep your money and that you can fork a system and still keep the same balances, you know, and that's kind of harder to do physically. Like we can't just clone a copy of, of all of the buildings or everybody's, everybody's property, but it's still really important that we keep exit in mind as as a threat 
to those who would take advantage of us. Yeah. Going back to markets, including the world, one obvious question is when new markets happen is why, why have they happened before? And I think what you might say is either people weren't frustrated enough or there wasn't low enough transaction costs or technology to, to enable them. Is, is that an accurate assessment of what prevents markets from existing and everything already? Yeah. I mean, I mean, look at some of the markets that exist today. Google, for example, has, um, you know, Google's continuous auction for ad slots on search results, like tens of billions of dollars of revenue every year coming from continuous auctions that use predictions of click-through rate on ads and a bid of how much each ad slot is worth and each click is worth. You know, that is completely impossible without a ton of technology. And I think that a, a lot of markets are possible today that weren't possible in the past just, just because of those changes. Totally. So with that in mind, what does crypto uniquely enable here? So to me, what kind of what crypto is, is, is decentralized networks of economic interaction, you know, with cryptography to provide provability of what happened. And so I think it enables kind of the general creation of markets with internal currencies and formal roles for who, uh, who validates transactions in the market, like who provides resources to the market, what a transaction is and what the history is. So to me, what's, what's, what's huge about crypto and why I'm, I kind of believe in the hype is this idea that like what it uniquely enables is markets and that that's something that, you know, can be applied to, to everything. And, you know, there's a lot of like trickiness to it. The, the fact that uh, in a crypto system, you have to kind of come up with the rules about who gets rewarded, how much for doing what uh, in advance, that you can have some degree of, of bidding for that. But then you have to come up with your bidding system in advance. But then, and now you're operating, you have this flow of resources through the system and are they being directed in the right proportions, I think is really, is really tricky. And that, you know, like there are systems for offering storage, for offering CPU time, for offering these different resources in a crypto network, but they're not like, they're not mature. We haven't seen they actually work. We haven't seen that you can tokenize storage, that you can tokenize CPU at, and that that can be, you know, at a big scale, something that, that replaces Dropbox. But at least what it looks like to me is that crypto is like kind of uniquely enables all those kinds of markets. And this is something that has been suggested since, uh, since the Agoric Papers in, in 1988 by Mark Miller and Eric, and Eric Drexler, which I think is a very much neglected and undes- undeservedly neglected piece of early crypto writing uh, that just kind of didn't happen to get cited a lot, but was very influential. Is, is there anything else you can unpack about the Agoric Papers in terms of their contributions or, or what we haven't yet mentioned in this episode? Sure. I mean, there, there's so much. I definitely recommend people just Google Agoric Papers and read them. It talked about the general idea of creating markets using software, including markets for computational resources. You know, and again, this was in, in 1988. Um, and ideas about, about smart contracts, about the connection between object-oriented software and private property and how objects on a distributed economic network Work would enact in the future, um, how there would be markets for computation time, for storage, how rather than wasting our idle computational resources, you could just sell them on the market. Questions of security, the idea that 
these networks would all tend to produce an internal currency. Like all of these things were, you know, were in this, this series of papers in 1988. So it's just, it's just absolutely fascinating how much they predicted. And, you know, some things they got wrong, for example, when talking about how there would naturally evolve like, like a form of money to pay for resource allocation in these computational systems, they're like, well, you don't really need public key cryptography to do that because if the software is running on like mutually trusted hardware, as long as every process has like a unique identifier, then you can just keep accounts. You know, and obviously, you know, they were kind of working from the, the, the days of, of timeshare systems, you know, that were not as heavily networked and that turns out that we are doing crypto on these decentralized networks where there's, you know, incredibly low trust. And part of the, the key to what is making these networks succeed is that they can thrive in this environment of, of low trust. So, you know, they've like got some things wrong, but they, they got a lot right too. In order for markets to eat the world, you need transaction costs to come down. Yet in a lot of present day crypto solutions, sort of transaction costs actually go up. How do you, how do you reconcile that? I think there were a very early stage of crypto technology and that yeah, th- things with that where transaction costs will be raised are not going to tend to make good markets until you get to the point where the benefits, for example, of having a much larger market overcome those higher transaction costs. Totally. What do you think about sort of systemic risk angle from markets eating the world? Like in, in 2008, interconnected markets, you know, created sort of systemic risk. It, it, how do you see that? applying elsewhere or, or is that sort of a you know fluke or exclusive to that sort of finance yeah so it's a really interesting question about uh like what will let me try to to, to rephrase it as the idea of in a future where we have all of these distributed economic networks for all different kinds of resources and where you have these software based agents that are taking actions in these networks so where you've got uh, like stocks today, bonds today, real estate, storage, computational power, you know, insurance markets for what happens if there is a weather change someplace. In a world where you have all of those networks, all of those markets and, and software operating on them, what is the systemic risk? And, you know, I think that that's it's kind of like there's more risk because it's a system that no one person can understand and analyze and it's going to interact in these in these strange ways but there may also be less risk you know because we've partitioned off things into these different systems because we can apply like formal rules for you know in what circumstances do we freeze a, a market um and we can see oh okay like in the weather markets like we need to freeze things if you know this unusual event happens um and maybe we can learn from that and have similar rules in, in other markets. So I, you know, I think it's really, I think it's hard to answer right now, whether the having all these interconnected complex systems that we don't understand will produce more risk or whether these networks are kind of inherently more anti-fragile than what we have today. I mean, I think that there's, there's factors both directions, but either way, it'll be, uh, it'll be really interesting. In areas that have market failures today, you know, all the um, externalities aren't internalized. And maybe you dispute even that premise. And if so, let me know. Is this all going to be a government intervention or some sort of other intervention? One, do you dispute the premise? And two, I guess, what is the what would you say is the role of, of government? Or what should the role of government be? So, I, I mean, I agree with the concept of market failure that, you know, sometimes you have transactions that don't capture all the costs and that impose costs on third parties. 
But I think it's an error to then say, and therefore, in those circumstances, you can empower this third party of the government to fix it. I think if you look in practice at, you know, the the budget of the United States and like, what are all the things that it does, or you go to the federal register and, you know, open it to a random page and look at a random law that you'll see that like in practice, even though there's this justification for government existing of like, oh, we need to fix those types of things. And there's like a theory behind it. That's, that's true. In practice, trusted third parties are security holes, as, as Nick Sabo would say, that when you give all of this power to the central authority, which is run by humans, the same kinds of humans who make these transactions, the same kinds of humans that cause externalities, they don't like magically with perfect honesty and diligence fix the externalities. They just like make new externalities of their own. And so, you know, it's not that market failure is not, not real in theory, but you always have to compare. And this is something my, my dad gives talks about compare market failure to government failure. Okay, the market has failed to, to do the proper thing in this situation. And we have, we have a good understanding as to why it might happen, like externalities. What is the reason why we think that a government or a third party put in charge of this based on how we monitor them? You know, like how, say, an election system or like what are the how can we know whether they're doing their job well and what are our mechanisms to remove them if they aren't? Given like the realities of that, do we expect this person to make this problem go away? Or are they just going to use the power to make more problems of their own? I think that in the vast majority of cases, people do use their power when they're given it to, like over time as the system evolves to create more problems rather than solve the original ones. And like we don't have a mechanism by which we can assign a third party like the job of doing something in our interests as our agent and then monitor them and hold them to it without them taking advantage of it. Like, you know, we do not have a philosophy or a theory for how to do that. Um, and so you can't just assume it. You have to work with what, what you have in practice, which is flawed markets and flawed governments. What should the role of government be in, in your mind? You know, I, when I was younger, I would, have, I would have answered, like, what the role of government should be based on, you know, either my morals or, or, or ethics or sort of like what I want as a libertarian. But I've actually really, really changed my views because of, of seasteading and competitive governance that, you know, instead of thinking that there's a, a role of government that we can philosophically derive or that there's a perfect legal system, what I think instead is like, I'd like to see a, an industry of different countries started by different people with different philosophies, all kind of competing for my business, like, and each having a different answer as to the question of what's the role of government. And let's see in practice, like, you know, not over drinks at the bar, not in like thousand page essays. Let's actually see which are good places to live, which are good places to work, what, you know, which countries and which systems take care of people and then see how they evolve over time as, as different countries copy from each other and imitate each other and draw from the latest philosophy. So I, I now fundamentally see this as an engineering problem and not a philosophy problem like I used to. Yeah. Let's say if C-Setting you know, achieved its original mission or achieves its original mission or some other product does, who are sort of the non-obvious winners and losers or least expected beneficiaries or people that may be, may be harmed by that? I think that, that, that the huge non-obvious beneficiary of seasteading is, is the poor and that that's kind of in the same way that who, you know, who benefited from the United States being, being founded. You know, it was the, 
million plus people a year who came from other countries to make a better life. And I think that, you know, there, there are like billions of people in this world who are being held back by living in legal systems that, that aren't working very well. Um, and that if you could make new zones for those people to go to, that that would just unlock more human potential than, than anything else. So I think, and I think that because, you know, advocates for seasteading are people like me, you know, I'm, I'm a, a well-off tech guy who lives in the San Francisco Bay area and people who fund seasteading research are, are people like Peter Thiel. And so people think of it as being some kind of like, oh, it's going to be a haven for the rich, or it's going to be, you know, a way for people to escape taxes, which is, you know, kind of ludicrous given that there's 20 countries you can go live in today, you know, and not, and not pay taxes. Like you don't, you don't have to move for that. But I think that really that it's going to be some combination of entrepreneurs from the first world who are like, Hey, I want to go live under this better system. I want to go, you know, try out this new thing, be a pioneer of a new society. And then it's going to be all the people who would have moved to the U S in the 19th century, people who want to work hard, make a better life for themselves and their children. And yeah, that that's going to be the major beneficiary of seasteading. Yeah. Going back to market failures for a second. Are there any areas where you think government or some other third party can make a more effective solution than markets for any specific type of industry or problem? I think that that self-defense is an, is an important one, you know, where maybe you could have markets in nuclear deterrence that's certainly been proposed. It's pretty difficult in general. I think that one issue with kind of making markets and everything is that we humans are not just general purpose computers you know, we have from evolution, we have these, these certain things that are intuitive to us. And I think that some kinds of markets really, really go against that. You know, I mean, look at the drive for universal health care as being a manifestation of the fact that we, we humans are fundamentally uncomfortable with markets for life and death, with markets for health. And that's a, you know, it's a challenge for pricing medical services, which, you know, are actually markets. They involve like, allocating scarce resources and, and decisions where you just can't give everyone everything, but we're really uncomfortable with it. And, and that leads to a lot of inefficiency. Education is another one where we have this romance about it. And, and maybe, maybe governance is like, I'm hoping that we can get people to think about shopping for a legal system, but maybe they can't. There's certainly this, this deep romance people have for their countries and their legal systems. And, you know, people love democracy, not because there's good, uh, mechanism design theories for it, but because one person, one vote just makes sense and seems fair. So I think that the, the, there are problems making markets and things where humans instinctually have, have revulsion. Reproductive technology is another one. If you look at things like, like gestational surrogacy, you know, or selling eggs or selling blood, you know, again, these are things that, that are economic, like like it or not, like people want blood and other people have blood and they won't just give their blood unless you pay them in some way or they will only, you know, to some degree, you know, motivated by wanting to feel good, but it just, it icks us out. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and understand how, how it limits what we can make markets in, which is it's something that I feel like a lot of libertarians aren't very good at. I feel like, well, you know, there's not a reason why somebody shouldn't be able to sell, sell their blood. Like, and it would be better. We would have more blood if they could. Like, you know, what's wrong with you? But ultimately, if you don't understand, 
why people are open to some ideas and not others, you're not going to be effective at changing the world. That's it. I also get a sense that you, you think some of those areas where humans are, you know, have revulsion or are confused, or unjustified or should be changed, perhaps like, you know, governance being one of them, maybe education being another. Are there certain areas where you morally would say it's just better to not have markets if you could wave a wand and change anything? And maybe defense is, is the one or? For me, it's the, the issue with taking markets to the extreme. You know, it's not about there being problems with, with markets and in any one thing, but that over time, markets tend to, like, they optimize for whatever, for some narrow thing that they're optimizing for. And that, like, there are lots of great things about competition. I think we could use more of it. But taken to an extreme, you kind of, you squeeze, like, all of the surplus out of life. Like, you squeeze all of the fun, all of the art, everything that isn't kind of devoted to that singular purpose. And I think that that's a really bad thing. Robin Hanson has this this metaphor that we live in a dream time, that the excess we have, the extra resources and extra time we have is like unprecedented historically and will not last into the future. That, you know, we're in this age where our ability to make stuff has gone past, you know, our population growth. And so we have this huge surplus and that that's not natural and is not going to last. You know, whenever there's market failure, there's there's a question of, you know, do should there be a third party or should there be just sort of a redesigned market. So two questions. One is, is there another alternative to that? And then two is, I want to get into the idea of sort of redesigning markets and then maybe Glenn Wiles, Glenn Wiles' book, Radical Markets, some ideas from there. Yeah, I think that people want there to be this line between markets and governments that, you know, that it's really much more continuous that, you know, even within a, a government, you have, you have competition for scarce resources. and the, the question of like whether it's better to fix a market failure with, you know, a different market mechanism or a regulation or the government nationalizing it, you know, I think that's, it's, it's going to be different for, for every case. And that it's something that part of my view of government is this idea that it's a technology, meaning it's something that we can develop and make better in lots of little ways. And that specializes to kind of each different situation. So, you know, it's not that like, it's always better to use some certain mechanism, or it's always better to use government, but that it's an exploratory process where, as the types of things we need to regulate grows and changes as our abilities grow and change. And we have this whole science of how do we design institutions? How do we design incentive systems and regulations? Who watches the watchers? We develop the technology of governing at the same time we develop the technology of you know, space traveler doing everything else. And then the two interrelate and we like apply our governing technology to trying to govern each of the specific areas, you know, and the, the right kind of governance technology is very different in different areas. Like how do you govern nuclear weapons or people researching, you know, bioweapons that can kill everyone versus how do you govern somebody growing some wheat on some land? Like those are very different. And you know, that my like kind of fear slash hope is about whether as our, our capabilities to change the world are advancing and advancing, like is our ability to regulate those capabilities like falling behind? I feel like people are doing way too little research on 
ways of governing and they're just like oh like you you make a democracy and then everything is good and like that's a problem because our governance challenges like we're trying to coordinate a more and more complex world where people can do things with more and more global impact you know and that's a challenging governance environment that's why i think it's so critical that we be trying new societies trying new legal systems and new mechanisms so we can find stuff that works better. And, and that's one reason I'm excited about crypto is that it's a place where we can try new mechanisms um, and where governance is going to evolve at, you know, at code speed instead of at paper speed. If you looked out, let's say you had a portfolio of 15 to 20, you know, new cities, all with their own leaders, jurisdictions, and you had to sort of bet as to which one do you think would be most successful? What, what societies, what leaders, what jurisdictions or what characteristics of each do you think would lend them to be most successful? I think the one thing that's going to tend to make for a successful society is being practical rather than ideological. You know, even though I you know, came at my initial dissatisfaction from the world from a very kind of libertarian ideological point, you know, if, I think if, if you look at a, a successful place like Singapore, you know, Lee Kuan Yew had to make a lot of like constant practical trade-offs in how he governed, you know, it wasn't that he had some, some grand philosophy of like, here's exactly what right and wrong is. He made a series of, of decisions based on his circumstances. Another thing, I think that our kind of modern attitude towards UX, towards making our products give people a great experience, you know, as, as so, so well pioneered by Apple and Steve Jobs. I think that successful startup cities will think that way they'll think of the city and the society as a citizen experience and they will try to make it a good, smooth, integrated, happy citizen experience. I think that the, that they'll probably be pretty centralized. You know, I think it's, it's really tempting to try to invent a society where everything is decentralized and there's no leader and everything is in markets. But, you know, I don't think that we can do that yet. Like, I think that we're, we're learning how to coordinate more and more things in a decentralized way, you know, and, and maybe Bitcoin will prove that the money and the global store of value can be decentralized, but that doesn't mean that you can necessarily, like, run an entire society in a decentralized way. So I think Singapore cross Apple. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to the question of, you know, changing from within versus changing from without, there's always a question of, do you even engage with the existing system? So given the state of our government... Do you think people should vote next Tuesday? Why or why not? Yeah, I'm kind of, I think it doesn't matter to the system if you vote, but maybe it matters to you in terms of what it means. You know, I think you can make the case that knowing about what's going on and like reading that little pamphlet and thinking through the issues has some tiny amount of value. But I also like the idea, like don't vote, it just encourages them. And I think that like opting out of a broken system is a way to to demonstrate like how you feel about that system. And that to me, part of like the, the perverse genius of democracy is how it takes our instincts to have a voice and like be counted and be part of our decisions. And then it harnesses it in a way where we like actually have almost no individual influence but we have that like full feeling like we got to be heard and be a part of things you know and combine that with how people are kind of following all the latest politics on the news and then they argue about it with their friends and who's right and who's wrong and what, what should we do about the middle east and who should be allowed into our country and, and who shouldn't and it's this like 
brilliant system for people being able to like let off steam and feel like they're part of something that they're like, they're not really part of. And so I think that that part of what good honorable people do is they try to like do their duty even when it's not in their benefit. And so I respect the people who are like, yeah, I'm going to go vote even though it's not worth my time because that's what a good person does. But that spirit is not ultimately going to fix things. Like I think the spirit that's going to fix things is people acknowledging that they're broken and being like, okay, this does not work. Let's build a system where your decisions actually matter. What might that system look like where everyone's you know, vote or system actually matters? Like, how, how might that be different structurally? The, the main way that your decision could actually matter is, you know, is the difference between casting a vote and buying a house. Like, when you cast a vote, what happens is the same for everyone, and it's based mostly you know, 99.99% on what other people chose. When you buy a house, you get that house. You live in that neighborhood. Your family goes to that school district. And so we fundamentally evaluate that choice better. And so a system where each person gets to choose, for example, what legal system they live under and gets the consequences of that decision is one where, where your choice matters. And sure, there might not be, you know, you don't get the legal system that says, like, I can punch everybody who I am offended by what they're wearing. Like, I'll just punch them and they can't do anything to me. Like, you're not going to get that legal system because the legal system is about laws that apply to you and me interacting together. And we're going to both have our interests and our negotiations. But I think that we could have a lot more choice for legal systems than we do. And that we'd have way better ones if people were actually shopping for legal systems and then getting them. Are you sympathetic to almost like proof of stake like systems where people have voting power in accordance to either how much wealth they have or how much stake they have in a current system? Definitely. I mean, I think that weighted systems where like different people get different amount depending on a voice, depending on how much skin they have in the game, I think are just, you know, are better, are like mathematically able to express a wider variety of mechanisms. So I definitely, I definitely favor that. What is your philosophy on? on wealth inequality, income inequality, broadly? Yeah, I think that income inequality is, is, it's really tough. You know, one of the things that I think about why we're getting more income inequality that I feel like not enough people are, are talking about is this idea that as the world gets more and more complex, the old ways of doing things work worse and worse. And the new ways of doing things are like what somebody figured out uh, 10 years ago. You know, so I have this, this line that, a thousand years ago, you could use a hundred year old strategy, you know, for what to do for a living, for what you should eat, for who you should marry, and would work pretty well. And a hundred years ago, to do as well with a strategy, you need a strategy that was only like 10 years old. And that, you know, nowadays, a good strategy is one that's, you know, maybe one year old. And as our environment changes faster and faster, and the right things to eat or the right people to marry or the right places to go to school or the right jobs changes faster and faster. It means that we have to figure out like from scratch what the best thing to do is because it's different now than it was a hundred years ago. And the more every single person in society has to like figure out from scratch, has that research and evaluation project of like, okay, what should I believe in? Like, what should I eat? How should I exercise? Who should I marry? Like that's hard. And the more that just getting like having a normal, good life requires like figuring out everything from scratch in a massive research project 
the harder it's going to be for most people. Like most people don't have the time for that. They don't have the skills for that. And so I think we're living in a world where we're just making it, you know, you have to be more and more of like an infovore, you know, research maniac. Trump, <laughs> for a second. So, so there, there are some people that say that some people voted for Trump because some very intelligent people because they wanted to not watch it all burn down, but bring rise to, hey, maybe competitive governance. Are you sympathetic to that viewpoint as being a reasonable viewpoint to have as to why you might vote for Trump? Or, or what are some other reasons why people, very intelligent people might prefer, prefer Trump? I think that most of the people who prefer Trump, you know, are people who are like less well educated and feel like they aren't being served well by the current system. You know, that, that a lot of the kind of pro Trump and burn it all down as people who have like, who have noticed that we have these elites who have structured the system to benefit them and who like not only aren't, aren't doing things to benefit the average American, but actually like, condescend to them like look down on them and sneer at the people that that who are who are paying their their salary and who they're supposed to be serving and people are like sick of that they're like mad about it and i think that's great and i think that there's this kind of minority that most people who are like successful and educated like naturally identify with those elites and don't like that trump has these class signals and different behaviors about appealing to different people but there's this kind of you know, minority of people like Peter Thiel who who see the the way that, you know, the establishment is not working, that elites are taking advantage of people and acting superior and are like, yeah, I, I, I think it's more important to vote for somebody who's who's outside the system than to continue perpetuating what what doesn't work. I mean, there's these crazy statistics about, you know, the votes based on like how rich a county was and like what percentage of people in Washington DC voted for Hillary where you know, it's, it's clear that, uh, that there's just this, this division where the people who, who run the country and go to the best schools really like sorted themselves geographically and culturally from the rest of the country. And that's just, that's not stable. And, you know, I, I think I have, I have plenty of, of negative things to, to say about Trump, but he is at least, you know, he's trying to make a bridge to those people and to like be the voice of, like the mass of Americans who, who are kind of being, you know, disrespected, called rednecks, looked down on by people, you know, especially progressives say that they're, they're all about compassion and like diversity, yet they're the most kind of condescending towards, towards other people of, of, of anyone. I mean, you know, try going into a, a Washington DC bar versus a, a bar in some small town and, um, you know, spouting off about Trump in the progressive bar or spouting off about, about uh, Clinton or, or Obama in, in, you know, in the small town bar. I, I guarantee you, you'll get a much friendlier reception in the second case. Why do you think that's, that's the case? I feel like, like the, the people in rural areas have better manners <laughs> and are less judgmental and more accepting, which is funny because our, our stereotypes of religion, right, are like these stereotypes of, people who insist on imposing their values on, on everyone. But instead what we seem to have is like progressivism is, you know, the religion that exists today. That's all about telling everybody how to live their lives. And yeah, there's some really interesting theories that, that, that like the same personality types that would have been drawn, for example, to extreme religious views 
a couple generations ago are, are being drawn to, to progressivism now. And that even though it's like in theory, the left and the progressives and the Democrats, that it's inherently actually a very, a very like rightist movement in the sense of like wanting to control everything in a, in a centralized way. And like, yeah. And like, let me tell you what's right and wrong. Like, let me tell you how to, how to live your life. And, and if I'm channeling the progressive response, it would be something like, Hey, there is a sort of dictator like figure in, in power. And when, you know, obviously this is a, you know, extreme comparison, but when, when Hitler was rise to power in, in the forties, you know, uh, being polite didn't work. And you know, it's not about who's the most polite, but standing up for, for values and, you know, and, and the current president has clearly violated those. Is there any sort of sympathy for that sort of argument or how would you respond to it? I definitely have some sympathy. And I think that, that Trump has been a pro executive power and has been, you know, like, and is more acts in a more fascist like way than most of our leaders. And that that's a, that's a bad thing. But like, ultimately I think that, that the greatest problem is, is tribalism and not Trump that like the way that, that Americans are sneering at each other based on their political party, judging each other, telling each other how to live their lives and that our like our discourse has broken down that like people get heckled out of speaking on topics that like are not anywhere near bad enough that you should like not be allowed to speak I, to me all of those things are just like so much more important and real and likely than like trump becoming another hitler that you know i just to me those are rhetorical devices that are used to try to like inflame the differences and the panic that are the real problem. But it is true that like fascists come to power and when they come to power, it looks a lot like Trump in a lot of ways. Like there are real similarities and I'm glad that people are worried, but I think it's really important that what they, the things they do with that worry, like how about this? Like I'll grant you your theory that this is a big risk and I support things like limitations on the executive to prevent that. Like, how about you give credence to my theory that the problem is actually like people saying you can't vote for that person or like, like the most controversial thing Peter Thiel ever did was support somebody who almost half the country voted for. Like, that is ridiculous. Like, that is, that is wrong. So how about you entertain my theory, you know, that the polarization and the saying that you're not allowed to have certain opinions, that that's the problem. And let's also have the things that we do to, to counteract you know, this fascism be things that don't drive us farther apart. Why do you think this sort of tribalism, why is it increased and what can we do to mitigate it in your view? I'm not sure why polarization has, has increased. And I would say that my response would almost be that what you need is not an explanation of why we become more like tribal and zero sum, but an explanation of why we weren't. Because I think the kind of the, the liberal order, you know, liberal in the sense of, of tolerance and diversity and, and free speech is relatively recent and, you know, limited to certain areas and a recent, like, past few hundred years of history. And so it's, like, really sad that it seems to be breaking down and going away. But maybe we shouldn't have been surprised and maybe we should be studying, like, okay, what was it that uh, enabled it to thrive? And, and one thing that I think is really relevant is when 
a group of people is producing value and things are positive some, it's much easier to get along and much easier to like be like, okay, I have these principles and I'm not always going to do the thing that's best for me selfishly. I'm going to follow these principles and pay the price. And when things are going great, that's easier to do. But we're in a stage of declining power for America, of slowing economic growth, right? There's been this stagnation of the the median compensation for like 40 or 50 years, um, you know, where most of the gains have, for a variety of complicated reasons, not been going to the average person. And it's natural that, you know, people turn on each other when times are tough. You know, it's unfortunate because it only it, it only makes things worse. But I think it's very natural. But this is a topic that like I, I don't feel I have great expertise on how to restore the liberal order, but I think it's it's kind of one of the key questions of today. And I'm really glad that like post Trump, there are really smart people on you know, all across the political spectrum now who are kind of thinking about this and, and working on it. And I think it's really important. And, and for folks like Peter Thiel or others who voted, uh, you know, to change the system from, from the outside, what do you think they thought success would look like four, four years in? Like, what are the either metrics or, or, or indicators that, like, what, what, yeah, what was success and are we on, are on that path in their view, in your opinion? You know, it's it's so hard to get a to get a straight answer from the world about like whether or not Trump has succeeded because people on both sides are are so biased. I would say things are, I don't know. I think that things are pretty good, but I do have to worry a little bit about the picking up pennies in front of a, a steamroller. That you know, by the numbers, I think that things are pretty good. But if we actually, if there's a ten percent chance of a fascist regime happening that, you know, the current numbers are not worth it, but it's, it's so hard to know, like, do we have a a 0%, a 10%, a a 50% chance that, you know, 15 years from now, there's a, there's a president for life Trump. I mean, to me, I think it's, you know, more like 1%, but I, you know, I'm not an expert on this. I think that what success would have looked like would have been like more extreme changes, like, executive orders that, for example, oh, here's one. So like change would have looked like either Jim O'Neill or Balaji being commissioner of the FDA. Uh, and that didn't happen. Right, right. More, more risks, more innovation. Like systemic change to cut away the red tape, like using executive orders, like as a scalpel to be like, okay, you know, why do we have a department of education? Like, why do we have a department of energy? you know, just cutting like big swaths of the stuff we're doing that we don't need to, to do. And that, you know, really hasn't been what Trump's done. Largely because interests are so entrenched. That, you know, it's, it's hard to tell how much he like understands that that's, that that's what, what we need or wants to do the right thing. I'm not sure about that, but definitely like, even if he wanted to, and even if he saw how important it was, I think that he could have changed the system a lot more than he did, but that it is much harder than people think. Like the president has so much less power than people think. I mean, he has meaningful power, like appointing Supreme Court justices and executive orders. Like it is meaningful power, um, but it's like to such a small number of, you know, the words of regulations that are passed and the overall number of people who is running the government, it's, it's tiny. 
you know, there's, there's a way in which they're, the president is much more of a, of a figurehead, like enough power that we, you know, can see them as being a leader, but, you know, nobody leads, really leads like a 300 million person country or a multi-trillion dollar budget. It's interesting. He's often described as sort of a very reactive, very reactive person with no agenda of his own other than his own sort of success or brand building. Do you, I don't think you know him personally, but do you get the sense that that is accurate, that is inaccurate, fair and fair? And if so, regardless of how to best incentivize him to do something like, hey, putting Jim O'Neill's head of the FDA? I mean, I think he is. You know, he's clearly somebody who who cares a lot about uh, being respected and about his image and and how he's being perceived. But you know, I kind of wonder if 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 all the attention paid to to Trump and the office of the president is like, you know, are are we engaging in proper analysis of the system and how to change it, or are we kind of like sucked in by the by the the spectacle, you know, and and being hooked by the media who wants our eyeballs and wants our clicks. You know, I feel like Trump is like, I don't know, is, is he the, is he the leader like that we need or that we deserve? Like he's clearly, he's clearly a person very, very in sync with the the clickbait days in which we live. So I don't know if that's, that's good or bad. It's certainly very natural, but I feel like what I want is to figure out how we can live in like less clickbaity days and have like better systems that actually find truth and, and promote policies that benefit people. So, you know, props to Trump for kind of riding the waves of the times, but I feel like I want to change the times. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I want to go back to our, as I segue back into sort of the arguments uh, against or for the limitations of markets. And, and, and someone might say it is an example of capitalism run amok, you know, glorifying sort of, you know, Billionaires, supposed billionaires, clickbait culture. Do you have some sympathy for that? Or how, how do you respond to that? And broadly, can we sort of acknowledge and describe the strongest arguments uh, against markets and all things uh, that we haven't discussed before? It might be economic, they're probably not, but more uh, sociocultural or from a fairness or justice perspective. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that we shouldn't kind of deify markets that you know, that markets are are mechanisms or classes of mechanisms and they're mechanisms which work really well. Like they they respect skin in the game. They respect uh, local knowledge, discovering prices over time. There's like a lot of great things about them and a lot of ways in which they promote equality, but they're, they're still, you know, they're just mechanisms and they have their, their imperfections. You know, markets are not good at pricing what they can't measure. They're not good at pricing the things that aren't involved in transactions and pricing externalities. You know, it, it's not clear within a market how to enforce the rules of that market. So I think that, that, that markets are certainly, are certainly not perfect. Uh, and, you know, one thing that I like about the crypto world is that there's more people thinking about mechanisms and thinking about mechanisms in an environment of, of imperfect trust. That I think that there's this naive tendency in the physical world that we think about our political mechanisms will somehow be operated by angels. And, you know, when you're building a crypto network, you know, however good you think the average person is, like however comfortable you'd be, like 
being cold in the middle of the night and coming to a farm being like, help, give me shelter and being like, yeah, they'll, they'll take care of me. That like, if you launch a crypto network, like somewhere out there on the internet, there's like a really smart hacker who is happy to just like try to take resources from you and that you have to design a system that can withstand that. And I think that that's like, that's more accurate and that's, that's good thinking and that, you know, it's really exciting to see people develop mechanisms which require less trust and are harder to take advantage of. And I think that we need more of that in our politics instead of just being romantic about our systems. Uh, what about the view of, of markets that, um, I don't know if it's a Marx view or sort of a neoliberal critique view of like that markets sort of distort how we view people and see them as inputs or, you know, overly rational about certain things. Can you acknowledge or unpack that view and, and, and respond to it? I definitely think it's true that, markets make us look at other people in terms of inputs and outputs and what they can give us. And and I think that that's a good thing that again, that there's this naive belief from back in the day when we lived in a tribe of 150 people and we were able to relate to everyone as a person and, and, you know, open our hearts to them and help them out, you know, just because they were a person that we'd grown up with and knew for the 30 years of our life. And like that works but that doesn't scale like at open just doing things for people to be nice or looking at people as individuals doesn't scale. Like I cannot look at 8 billion people as individuals. <laughs> Nobody can, you know, I can't even look at, at the, you know, the, the 10 million people who live in this metro area as individuals. And when we're, when we're coordinating uh, a, a large number of people, we need to look at them, you know, based on, only those few characteristics that that most matter to that coordinated interaction. We need to strip away all that uniqueness and all that variability because you know it doesn't matter for the purpose of coordinating ten million people. And and I think that that's a good thing. And then there's always going to be fighting about like what is the proper scope for that? Which things do we take into account and what the rules are? You know, because first off, none of us know what the best rules are. None of us know what the best mechanisms are. So of course we're going to disagree. And different mechanisms, like in often in subtle ways, benefit and harm uh, like different people and different groups. And so, people fighting about which mechanism we should have, you know, is often just a proxy war for their own interests. I think that today, that the kind of voter fraud is a great example of that, where people act like it's about like, do are you letting people vote? Like, are you trying to disenfranchise people? you know, people on, on, on both sides. And really it's just, it's just rational self-interest that the Democrats and the Republicans are each tending to favor changes to voter registration, changes to voter ID checks that in their specific regions benefit their political party. And that that like broadly fits most of the things that they advocate for. And that, you know, saying it's about enfranchisement is just, is just a smokescreen. There's this quote, I'm trying to find it, Families, communist, uh, you know, local level Democrat, state level Republican, Fed level libertarian. Can you sort of unpack that idea? Yeah, absolutely. The the degree to which different levels of freedom and different coordination systems work depends on scale. And right, this is something that, as computer scientists, like we should understand, is that you know the ideal algorithm for a given situation depends on scale. And something that works at one scale may totally fail at another scale. And yet people somehow throw this out when it comes to politics. But, you know, within your family, you can be 
more communist. You, you share resources because you're close to each other. You care about each other. You're, you're, you're along for, for the long term and you value each other. As you go up, like your town can be governed in a somewhat tribe-like fashion, like by consensus, right? If you can actually go to the town hall when there's a meeting and like have your voice on your issue or go and talk to the mayor or talk to somebody, talk to the mayor, that kind of tribal consensus-based system works. With 300 million people, it does not work. And so as you go to layers of coordinating more and more individuals, I think you need to you need to take more of an abstract systems approach and think about the incentives and the mechanism design rather than like trusting on, on people, just like knowing each other and caring about what's best for each other. I mean, there's something similar here in the like question of repeated interactions, where if you're just going to interact with someone once, you should trust them way, way less than if you're going to interact with them a thousand times. It's like those are two different systems where people are going to choose different things and different mechanisms work. And I think the same is true for scale. Let's talk about Silicon Valley a little bit. I mean, you, you've been here for two decades plus, more, less? Yeah, 24 years. How, um, or we were talking about sort of the rise of tribalism. Some people say they're sort of, you know, because moved away from San Francisco because it says certain things you can't say, maybe for other reasons as well. How has it changed in the time you've been here? And how do you sort of look at the future, more importantly, the future of Silicon Valley as it relates to like economic position in the world, its cultural position? Shed some light a little bit on how you see it moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think that Silicon Valley has definitely aged. And it's, you know, it's gone from a place where people are all about like doing the new thing to, to a place that has a lot more conformity and, and still has a, a ton of innovation and vitality, you know, but, but clearly not to the same degree that it did before. And, you know, I think it's really good that there are more startup hubs forming around the world. You know, I think that's really important. Like clearly there are incredible economies of scale in having a tech hub because otherwise Silicon Valley, you know, would not have existed and would not have like persisted despite the insane housing costs. But ultimately, like I want to see different hubs in different areas with different cultures like all existing. That's that's just a better world. I, I do think that there's something really strange about the kind of political sameness in Silicon Valley. Like why why is it in the place that has um, you know kind of the most openness to new things in these other areas of technology that that people are still you know following the same old political parties. And and there I think it may just be the that in any place that's like wealthy and educated tends to be in the US like mainly democrat and silicon valley is no different in that way i do think that there you know peter thiel kind of exemplifies something very like different and nonconformist about silicon valley where even if if silicon valley is trend following in like okay it's a rich metropolitan area it is mostly democrats the minority like the 1% most open-minded people in Silicon Valley, like the 1% most politically innovative people are like way more innovative and open-minded than almost anywhere else. So even if there is this like broad culture of conformity and, you know, it's a place where like you can't, you know, you work at a big tech company, you can't just have a Trump bumper sticker. Like it's, it's not okay. But yet you still have this like minority of people who is willing to like re-examine things from first principles and think about things from the perspective of like, can a new solution be built 
like, can human ingenuity solve this problem? I mean, like Larry Page gave a talk where he said, hey, we need experimental zones of governance. You know, you've got like Tim Draper trying to like split up California, which is, you know, literally just common sense to make a jurisdiction work better, like have more smaller jurisdictions. So I think that the, the minority of people here, you know, Elon Musk trying to save the human race by making us a, a multi-homed a species that's not vulnerable to one data center crashing. I think that the best people here are still, you know, extremely good. But I also think that that culture is kind of, is expanding to be in more places. And that that's like such a good thing. So important, right? Like, how about we have innovation be like multi-homed, um, you know, on earth so that it can't just be taken out by one asteroid. And, and so that like different types of people who like wouldn't live in Silicon Valley can, can do it. I mean, I think that's something that's a real problem is that there are entire classes of people who are like excluded from becoming tech innovators because, you know, they didn't want to live in a really expensive metropolitan area. You know, maybe you want to live more cheaply. Maybe you want to have a large family, Maybe you want to live in nature and have room to run around. And I think it's really important that, that those people be able to become technologists too. You know, it's interesting. We've been talking a little bit about, you know, I guess uh, maybe the term we'll use is intolerance as it relates either politically or we were talking about crypto. And there's obviously you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, a lot of uh, you know, maximalists on, on all sides. What do you, and you come from, you know, a family and you yourself that you know, has sort of strong principles. Like when is it, what is sort of a framework for, you know, to what extent you should fight, fight for your principles versus like alienating others for thinking about different principles and what sort of skill sets are needed for people to engage with people on other principles while also who have other principles while also fighting for fighting for your own. That's a really interesting question. I think a lot of it's about the actual diversity. Like if you actually value diversity in a sense of like when people believe different things, like that is a value because then like I can look at these two different perspectives and maybe create a model that includes both of them. Or like these people will go out and try different things and you know we're more likely to find something that works. I think that that having that value and seeing like dissent or someone someone viewing things differently as as like a good and not a bad is really important. And then like trying to structure things so that different people can try different things. And like, we don't insist on everything being done the same way. You know, I think that that's, that that's incredibly, incredibly important. Like, you know, you live your way, I'll live my way. And, you know, being really, really stingy with the cases where we say, oh, your lifestyle, like, threatens me. Like, it's always so tempting to try to control other people by doing that. And it's just, it's so dangerous. Like, there are cases you know, if, if you invent a bioweapon that can kill everyone on earth, like that affects me. And I support like limitations on freedom if those limitations will actually like reduce the chance that somebody can do that. But I think in the vast majority of cases where we say, I mean, even like nuclear weapons, like somebody, like one person making a nuke is not any kind of systemic threat. And I think, you know, let alone if you get down to like uh, microaggressions or like, somebody will speak about me meanly and like that affects me to such a degree that I should like harm them or shun them or like make laws against them. So I think that having that kind of humility of like, yeah, I, I have a strong opinion on how I want to live, but that doesn't mean that 
I know how you should live and just trying to design systems where like each person can have what they want. There's kind of a computer science nature to it, right? It's like, it's like designing a good API. Like, like what is the border between this system and the other systems? Like where are the lines? What are the things that I'm responsible for? And I guess I want to see society much more like modularized and componentized and like broken apart into different libraries with clear APIs and not have this like morass of, you know, spaghetti code that is our legal system where it's just like can be about anything. And like you have to get, you know, you live in this one area and then you have like this entire stack of laws all applies to you. And like, yeah, maybe you can get a little bit of difference by moving from one state to another, but you know, mostly you just have the same OS and you know, that's not, that's not an efficient or practical way to, to build the world. Yeah. It was interesting to you to see sort of the rise of Bitcoin also follow with the rise of, of Austrian economics sort of given your historical background and can you maybe unpack the difference economically between maybe Rothbard and, and, and your father, the, the different sort of schools there? Sure. So like on the um, Austrian economics side, yeah, it has been really surprising because Austrian economics is, is fairly old, but it's, it's one of these things where there's been a resurgence of interest in it because of the internet. And it is really interesting, this idea of like Bitcoin as sound money and having this kind of ideological basis and like a basis that I think is, is kind of, is like partly true and partly false. Like I think inflation is, is bad and inflation is stealing from people and like the central bank printing money is a bad thing. But I don't think that like all business cycles, for example, are caused by inflation or that like inflation, depending on how the money is injected, will affect how much it creates like malinvestment across different sectors. But it's, I don't know, I guess kind of like the paleo diet, there's something about people like seeing, like it's good to do things in new ways, but sometimes when you do things in new ways, they might like work at first, but then like it might be better. The new way of doing things might be better but yet more vulnerable to going bad over time. For example, like any situation where you say like, oh, the natural thing that happens if you and I like don't trust each other might be not the best outcome. But if we can appoint this other person to be like a neutral arbitrator, then we can get the best outcome. And that might even like work for a little while, but eventually, you know, somebody's going to take that neutral arbitrator position for their own advantage. And so even though you've made a system that looks better, it's actually like more vulnerable to being taken advantage of. I think that that's the case with, uh, with, with fiat money. Like, yeah, it may be that with the right central bankers in certain situations, um, like the Great Depression, that there are ways of manipulating the money supply that you can do with fiat and that are good for the economy. But creating that system is a system where people can steal tons of resources by taking the privileged positions within that system. And so then after decades of that happening, we realize, hey, wait a second, trusted third parties were security holes. Let's make a new system that maybe doesn't have the flexibility of, of changing the money supply, but like, at least is not vulnerable to being taken over in that way. So yeah, I think that there's a, a, a close relation and that's valuable. Like paleo, you know, okay, let's eat in this old way. You know, maybe it doesn't, it's not as good in some ways, but eating the new way leads to us being taken advantage of by people making high sugar, high fat, high salt things that like get us addicted and mess up our body. So let's eat in this old, simpler way. It's actually better. 
and some Austrians might go so far as to critique uh, your grandfather for saying he's perhaps more closer to Keynes than, than people thought in that he believed that government should step in instead of by you know, expenditures or, or consumption by sort of the Fed and monetary policy. Are you sympathetic to that critique or how would you respond to it? Well, you know, the great thing about the modern crypto world is that we're going to get to see different systems with different types of inflation compete. I guess I think that there's good theoretical and empirical evidence that intervening in the money supply can help the economy. Like, and that said, trusted third parties are security holes. And if you give a group the power to intervene in the economy, they're probably mostly going to do it poorly. So I'm sort of, you know, sympathetic to, to my grandfather's view in theory, but I think to the Austrian view in practice. So in a Bitcoin world, do you abolish the Fed? Definitely. Cool. <laughs> all, all I needed here. Another idea, I mean, if Bitcoin was so disruptive to governments, wouldn't they be outlawing it more explicitly? Or how do you think about sort of how governments have responded to Bitcoin and whether Bitcoin is truly a threat to them? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, because there are some people who ideologically are in favor of Bitcoin and they think that, you know, like the sovereign individual predicted that, you know, by taking away the power of the government to inflate and perhaps in a, you know, anonymous e-cash system, reducing the power of the government to tax will make the government weaker and be an existential threat to them. And, you know, I just, I don't see that as very credible, even if you take certain areas out of government control and, and that's a good thing there are still plenty of other areas that they can use to tax. And, you know, it's fascinating, like the Bitcoin, I mean, it's so weird to me having been into eCash, you know, for 20 years and expecting that we'd have like blinded, you know, anonymous cash systems to have like the entire history of transactions be public is, you know, is, is like WTF. And there are some people who say that governments actually kind of like Bitcoin for that reason, that they're able to trace more effectively. I think that'll change in the future as we get better anonymization technology. And, you know, there's also the question of like, are governments rational actors that will respond accurately to defend themselves? And, you know, I think that they're, that they're not, that like you shouldn't underestimate their power and that they may act in their self-interest, but that, you know, in the same way that government a modern government is not a machine for like passing effective laws to benefit everyone. You know, it's also not a machine for taking effective regulatory actions that protect itself. And so I think that there totally is a space for making new technologies that take power away from the state like Bitcoin and that they don't necessarily act to ban uh, because the regulators act for a variety of like complex public choice reasons having to do with consistency and, and perception and not just in their own self-interest. I mean, look at the underfunding of the IRS today. No rational, like, government as business, you know, would, like, underfund its, you know, accounts receivable department the way that our government does. What's a, what's a view about how the world works that you've changed in the last year or, or, or even few years, maybe politically, maybe economically, maybe just about how people work? I would say that, as I mentioned before, like, over my life, I've definitely come to see politics and governance is much more like engineering than philosophy than being things the where it's not you can't derive from first principles the best way to do things and that we're we should experiment and see in practice i would say that something that's changed more recently in kind of the age of polarization and 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 trump is you know i think that i'm 
sort of like pessimistically, like less focused on libertarian values because I feel like we are like as a society losing something even more basic that the the liberal order of of us all being like, hey, we're in this together. We have these shared values. Like you're allowed to put forth different opinions. Debate is a good thing. Like those are things that, you know, 20 years ago I was, I took for granted and assumed that, okay, now we should just have, we should have even more freedom. And now I see that like, I was wrong to take those things for granted that, you know, even this like lesser degree of cooperation is not just something you can take for granted. And it's something that like we're losing as a society. And so, you know, maybe the most important thing is not freedom, but is coordination and, you know, how you protect coordination from being taken advantage of by third parties and like, how does it evolve over time to stay cooperating? And then like, how does that intersect with changing technology? Like what are the new ways that we can cooperate or what are the ways in which we're getting worse at cooperating? If, uh, if your dad's book was Machinery of Freedom, maybe yours will be Machinery of Coordination. <laughs> and yeah, and what is, what is crypto if not a fascinating new machinery for coordinating? Absolutely. So in, in closing, um, you talked a little bit about the adaptability, you know, how it used to be the, the cycle for which people need to adapt is, is much, much, much quicker and exponentially. So what does that mean for, in, in closing, how your your kids' lives will be different. Maybe their education, maybe how they experience government, government or sort of paint, paint a picture of how, how you expect your, your kids' life to be different than yours. I think that my kids will grow up in a world where there's uh, things are like even less natural and intuitive and where there's even more change and less stability. I think that they will like strangely grow up in a world where having old-fashioned values and old-fashioned knowledge is actually a benefit where in some ways I think that like we've actually gone backwards to where like the values that we're teaching our kids or the technology that we're training them on or exposing them to the food that we're giving them is actually like worse for them. And that hasn't been true for most of, of human history. There were certainly like specific generations where things got worse, you know, but I think in general you wanted to be kind of like with the times or ahead of the times and, you know, I think that, that kids who are raised on, you know, the technology of the, the 70s or like the diet of the 1870s or the, the educational uh, systems of 100 years ago will actually be in better shape than people who use the default technologies and screens, connections and food of today. You know, whereas I think I benefited from growing up on, on getting to use those early computers. You know, I think that kids who are using today's computers versus uh, the ones that I had when I was a kid, it's actually like worse for you. It's more like junk food than like something better. And that's strange. But if you like history and don't mind being old fashioned, it's also an opportunity. Awesome. Perfect place to close. First, the people who are fascinated by, by our conversation today and want to learn more about you and, and what you have got coming, where, where, where might you point them to or any, any, any clubs you want to go? Yeah, most of my writing these days is on Twitter. Twitter as Patricimo. I've also got a book on C-Sitting Out with Joe Quirk uh, and a number of essays at a thousandnations.com, Let a Thousand Nations Bloom, a group blog on competitive governance that I started. 
Awesome. Uh, Patrick, I have to say that uh, I've done a couple hundred episodes, but this is uh, perhaps one of my favorites. So thank you so much for, for coming to the podcast and having a great conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for your, your questions. I really enjoyed it. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.